This week on the Sport Blokes. On this week's show, yellow and black. The Tigers of the AFL Premiers, the Storm of the Kings of the NRL, when not to store Delhi ham, plus mixed results in the IPL. Let's go. Stewie, as we do at the top every week, what caught your attention and what'd you miss? Well, what caught my attention this week actually came off the back of a chat about the Lakers championship we've had in recent weeks. So we're having a really great time at your birthday, Shindig, over the weekend. And happy 37th again, by the way, you old fart. Anyway, we're talking to a good friend of ours. He put me onto this really interesting YouTube video done by JXH. Uh, yes. or, yeah, I haven't watched it yet. JX My High Roller. What it was doing, though, it was discussing and rating the strength of every championship since the 83-84 season when the NBA went to their 16-team playoffs. Basically, it used this formula taking strength of schedule against average winning margins in those games, and it gave each team an overall score. And then what it did was then ranked the teams based on those scores of the teams that they actually beat. It's called Using Numbers to Find the Most Difficult NBA Championship Ever Won. Definitely worth 8 minutes and 49 seconds. No, so that is, it's only that short. Yeah, really, really short. Yeah, I, I haven't watched it yet, but mm. I look forward to For the record, the Lakers Championship this season was ranked 35th of 37 teams. Wow. So well, was... I mean, Miami had all those players out. Yeah. Well, Pat Riley came out yesterday and said that he reckons it would have gone minimum 7 if Bam and Dragic had been healthy. Minimum seven. <laughs> like, it, Could like, have gone 15. Well, <laughs> no, I know, I know what you mean. It just sounds right. Sorry, sounds yeah, yeah. I mean, you're right. Minimum is not the right word. They would have taken it to seven and they might have won it. It doesn't actually take into account injuries, though. Um, uh, but what it does say to me, though, is obviously they missed the Clippers and the Bucks, who obviously were the two strongest teams outside of the Lakers. And it's, it's not a perfect science because, as I said, it doesn't take into account injuries. It doesn't take into account the fact that the Lakers were in a bubble 2,500 miles from home. It does, however, add to the MJ is the GOAT argument because four of MJ's six rings were in the top 15 difficulty seasons while two of LeBron's four are in the bottom four. Mm, very interesting. And only one of LeBron's is in the top 20. What about my Spurs? Should have looked at that. I didn't oh, Well, actually. I'll watch but Next time. one really interesting thing, though, was that Kobe and Shaq's three-peat in the 2000, 2001, and 02 season were 5, 2, and 4, respectively. Yeah, I know that 2001 was really strong, our friend was saying. Yeah, the West was obviously... I mean, it was stacked back then. You had, obviously, the Spurs were amazing. The Kings were great. The Suns were a superb team as well. So yeah. you had all these really strong teams. Anyway, I could go on and on about that all day. The other thing that caught my attention was an article that seems to do the rounds every time there's an asterisk season, which... Kind of seem fitting considering how much we've been discussing them. And it's the asterisk that could be attached to every season since 1990 for the AFL. Ooh. For example, the cost of living allowance attached to every single Swans yeah, okay. victory. Yep. The 91 grand final being played at Waverley. Or the play-on slash block from Dom Sheed and Willie Rioli in the 2018 decider. Always a fun read as long as you can have a laugh at yourself, basically. How about yourself? So, Shuri, I spotted a couple of really interesting things on Twitter. And I'll get to those when we talk about the football. What did you miss, mate? <laughs> Well, sadly, I didn't actually catch much of the IPL this week, but I still managed to read up a bit about some of the amazing efforts since we last recorded. And with, obviously, the NBA now gone, the AFL now gone, the NRL now gone, we can start turning our attentions to the IPL a little bit more. Yes, so, indeed, yeah. yes. How about yourself? Yes, it's you going miss? to be 36 here on Friday, so you Ooh. can definitely feel cricket is around the corner here so. in Australia. I think so. Uh, what did I miss? Well, I missed the NRL grand final in the end. Oh. I did tape it. 
But I made the preference to rewatch the AFL over the NRL because I'm just quite frankly more interested in it. And obviously, as you know, because I was hosting on Saturday, I didn't get to see each and every piece of play. So I wanted to see the whole thing to be able to talk about it with some authority. And I dare say I might have jinxed the cats, but we'll get there. <laughs> we'll get there. Let's get into the news roundup, Shui. Some F1. Yeah, the Portuguese Grand Prix took place over the weekend at the Algarve International Circuit with shock horror, Lewis Hamilton winning. Hey! Ahead of Valtteri Bottas. He's now won eight of the last 11 races. And Bottas often comes second too. Well, yeah, he's usually <laughs> one or two. And he's now officially passed Michael Schumacher for the most all-time wins with 92. Daniel Ricciardo had an absolute shocker. He started from 10th on the grid and finished in ninth place. Not a great weekend for mm, him. No, not at but all. But congratulations to Hamilton. It's a phenomenal record no matter what you think of the guy. Mm, absolutely. Major League Baseball. Yeah, well, they are smashing through the World Series. Would you believe they hadn't even started when we recorded last Monday, and here we are the following Monday. They're already five games in. The teams have actually alternated. So the Dodgers won 8-3 in Game 1. The Rays won 6-4 in Game 2. The Dodgers won 6-2 in Game 3. The Rays won 8-7 in Game 4. I actually saw the bottom of the ninth in that one. Some really crucial errors for the Dodgers, who would have been kicking themselves. So they could actually be up. The, 3-1. The Dodgies, maybe? Well, yes, yeah. Yeah, but they did have a win today, 4-2, so they are up 3-2. But they could have won the series, actually, mm. if they didn't blow that game 4. How nuts is that? They could have won the entire series in less than a week. Yeah. Oh, it is nuts. It's, it is nuts. It's crazy. But now it's 3-2, so anything can happen. Bit of news in the UFC world, maybe it's just a surprise, I guess. Yeah, so. we saw the shock retirement of Dagestani MMA fighter Khabib Namagamadov after he took his record to 29-0, destroying Justin Gaethje on Saturday night. Khabib wants to be recognised as the best pound-for-pound pound fighter in the MMA. He's probably pretty close, but the man who actually holds that, John Jones, had a lot to say about that over the weekend, pointing out that he's a 15-time champion compared to just four for Khabib. And he said, the fact this is even a conversation is mind-blowing to me. Either way, these two guys are scary as shit. Mm. You got some news on the Giro? I do, yeah. So Jai Hindley has uh, just missed out on becoming the first ever Australian to win the Giro d'Italia, finishing runner-up by 39 seconds to his friend, British Tao Geogogan Hart. So it's an excellent effort from... <laughs> that was an excellent effort from you. Uh, well, that's, that's assuming I said it right, mate. <laughs> Even if you didn't. <laughs> but actually, I heard his dad on the radio this morning. He was really down to earth and said that Jai works super, super hard and he actually missed out on the Tour de France. So he wasn't even in the team for the Tour de France. And he nearly won the Giro Giro d'Italia. It's a statement, isn't it? It's a fair effort. Bit of golf? Yeah. Another blow to another Aussie leading into the Masters at Augusta. We spoke last week about Day having issues with his back. Adam Scott has tested positive to COVID, which three weeks out is not a particularly great thing. He was actually forced to withdraw from the Zozo Championship on Wednesday. And world number one, Dustin Johnson, also tested positive last week. So there's a possibility we could have a, a really depleted field going no, into the No, they're lucky it's three weeks out. There's enough time for them to quarantine. True. But you just never know yeah, with this yeah. thing. So if, yep. if it lingers a little bit, they may not be allowed to play. And all of a sudden, DeChambeau becomes an even bigger favorite mm. in my mind. And lastly, we've got a little bit of wrestling. So, sure, you've heard of Tony Modra. I have. Have you heard of Brendan Vink? Yes, as long as there's no follow-up questions at all. (laughs) Well, he's the new Australian WWE wrestler who's decided to take on the wrestling name Tony Modra in homage (laughs) to the former Adelaide Crow and Frio Docker forward. Godra. Godra, that's right. 
Well, so that's a nice little interesting one there. No surprise that Australian social media lit up with people speculating that a, a high knee to the back of the head might be his finishing move. <laughs> yeah, so he's obviously uh, he's, he's not the Tony Modra. He's no. who's about two or three months shy of being fifty-two. Yes, now. no, this is thirty-one-year-old Adelaide-born Brennan Vink. But what? Yeah, what an amazing story. Also, former NRL player Daniel Vito actually debuted earlier this year under the name Zion Quinn and was smashed by former champion Sheamus. But he's actually made a really meteoric rise in the WWE. So there's a couple of Aussies really starting to make yeah, their name didn't over know there. That. Didn't know that. There you go. Which is good for them. Yeah, very good. All right, Shui. Well, let's get stuck in. Football's day of days, albeit on a night. Night of nights, yeah. In, in, <laughs> in Brisbane and with a half-filled crowd. The crowd was pretty good, though. They were. And we nearly didn't have a game with the lightning and thunder. I didn't even realise. People turned up and they said, oh, it might be postponed. Like, What? Really? Well, thank goodness it was a night game for me. Well, you, exactly. If had it been an afternoon game, they would have been playing through torrential rains or it might have been absolutely cancelled. Or it would have just been a night game like it yeah, was anyway. Well, yeah, yeah, it might yeah. have made literally well, zero. Well, apparently I think they were willing to push it as far as Monday if they had to. Okay. But uh, luckily it didn't It didn't have to come to that. In the end, Richmond, 12 goals, 9, 81, defeated Geelong, 7 goals, 8, 50. The game was much closer than the scoreline read. It was that typical 30-point margin that seems to happen... So often in grand finals. Richmond ran over the top, but it was an absolute cracker of a game. It, it pretty much delivered on everything it promised. If there are still a few Yankees watching over there after that window of exposure when they had nothing else to watch, and if they've clung on, I think it was a pretty good advertisement for the game. Yep. Look, say what you want about them. I think we can safely say this is a dynasty now for Richmond. Absolutely superb game of footy, as you said, for probably about three and a half quarters. Kind of trailed off towards the end as the, the Cats kind of ran out of legs and probably out of motivation as well. But unlike last year, the Tigers actually had to earn this one. Oh, absolutely. Which was great. Absolutely, that is. So as I mentioned, you know, we all watched it in a kind of social setting, but I was up and about and I'd had a couple of drinks and this, that and the other. So, you know, I, I didn't see everything. So I did decide to rewatch it all last night. I've got to say, Hodgie's pre-game kind of pump up fell down a bit like a lead balloon. <laughs> that didn't go too well. And dare I say, whatever kind of frenzy that he might have inspired quickly disappears when you've got the diminutive, softly spoken Bruce McAvaney as the first voice after that. <laughs> uh, but Bruce had a decent call, though, it's got to be said. Uh, but uh, yeah, so the, the, we didn't see a lot of the coverage other than the game, did we? We can't really talk about the entertainment, but I don't know how entertaining it was I, anyway. I have not heard very good things about it. Yes, so yes. Yes, we avoid that. <laughs> Uh, should, should we just kind of kind of look quickly quarter yeah, by quarter? Well, yep, I think that works. So one of my notes here is just like last week, Richmond seemed to be managing the ground and conditions a little bit better early. Perhaps last week in the rain against Port maybe helped them a little. But then Geelong did seem to compose themselves a little bit, but not before the clock stopped at 12.55 after two collisions causing two major injuries. So we had Vlosten and Patrick Dangerfield What's happened is Dangerfield's kind of lifted his arm to fend off and he's cracked his forearm into the head of, of Nick Vloston, who, by the way, looked like he was out cold before he even hit the ground. And then in the same play before the whistle was blown, Gary Ablett dislocated his shoulder on a cotchin tackle and Bruce managed to keep things somber but also be excited about the remarkable start perfectly. So hats off to Bruce there. Few commentators could have navigated the difficult period between feeling sorry for Vloston but being super excited that we're only three minutes in and it's all happening. <laughs> yeah, this was absolutely hectic. Absolutely, yeah. Hectic's the right word. Absolutely it was. I will say this though. It's kind of interesting. I was thinking about it earlier today. The direct results of those two injuries probably had a bigger say on the results of the game 
than people realised at the time. The fact that, that Richmond knew they were a man down for the entire game, they were able to mentally adjust to that. I think probably Geelong thought that Ablett was done and then mm. all of a sudden he came back and heroically came back on. Yeah, so Gaz came back with 6 minutes 30 left. So he only actually missed about 6, 6.5 minutes of game time, which is crazy. But he just... With a dislocated shoulder. But he wasn't himself. I mean, that, that was the, the problem I had was it actually probably almost would have been better if Ablett had stayed off. And, um, I, and, I, and I hate to say it. Yeah, well, I, I'm not sure I agree with that entirely, having rewatched it. So he, he actually played quite well initially when he came back. He had that lovely over-the-shoulder yeah. handball to, I think it was Selwood, which led to a Tom Hawkins goal, I think it was. Yep. But he re-injured himself late in the third, and that's when he probably should have called it, I felt. But I actually felt that his first comeback was okay, and he played pretty well. Super brave. Super brave. Yeah, I mean, I'm on the fence about the first. He was good. I mean, obviously that handball was spectacular, and there were a few a few moments, but I, I just don't think he had the same sort of impact on the game. And yeah, 100% after the second one. Yeah. Oh, yeah, he was done after the second one. You could tell. And that goes back to Scott. He has to take Well, that's place. right. A lot of people were, were, were saying, you know, oh, Gaz, it's like, well, no, there is a coach, you know. Yeah. <laughs> the coach makes the decision who's sitting on the bench and who's playing on the field. Exactly. So, yeah. And can we also take... Like our friend said, though, a 60% Gary Ablett is better than 100% of a lot of blokes. So... It's tricky. It is, but I, I'm not sure I buy that right now at this stage of his career. I would have said yeah, that's maybe fair. A, a few years ago. But anyway, can we take a moment, though, obviously, to just pause and say, like, feel really bad for Vlosten. Obviously, yes. having his shit handed to him by Dangerfield, but also having his Surf Coast house set on fire about 36 hours before yeah. the game as well. Injury to insult. Not Yeah, exactly. It's, Crazy. It's just not great. I mean, a premiership medal always helps with that sort of yes, thing. Yes, yes. But not a not a great sort of thing, and then I guess look, we'll give them about twenty seconds or so. We had these two absolute morons in. Oh uh, yeah, the about three minutes left in the first. Yeah. So it was a very very. Uh, you were right. Hectic is the perfect word to explain yeah. it. It was now, nuts. This was purely in the interest of likes on social media. I'm not going to name them. I've seen these guys on YouTube. Most of their videos are just stupid childish shit, like hitting golf balls at each other and. Making each oh, other. Oh, so they like jackass guys, are they? Yeah, except they're actual jackasses. Well, the jackass guys are too. Most of them. Well, yeah, true. But look, it annoys me no end that these guys will probably end up having their fines paid for them by their fans, and that's as much time as I'm prepared to give them. Yeah, no, I don't need to say anymore. So, but there are also additional injuries. So Parfit did his thumb with about six minutes left, and Broad copped a knee to the head midair as well. And the, the commentators thought he was done, but he actually came on about three minutes later. So at the end of the first. So there was carnage. I've actually, I'll, I'll raise you. Did you actually see that Basher Hawley played almost the entire game with, with a torn a calf. calf? Yeah, I did. I heard that today. So he did his a couple yeah. of minutes after Vlost and got knocked yeah, out. Yeah, yeah. He, yep. he ran out the entire game. Yep. And a lot of, uh, it, it explains why he was so quiet. The commentators, mm-hmm. and we kept saying when we were all watching, like, gee, Basher Hawley's been pretty quiet, yeah, hasn't not, he? not much run. But it just him. makes the win even more impressive. Mm-hmm. So they were down one of their best defenders pretty much the entire game. Hooley on a dud league. I don't know how badly Broad was affected, but it would have affected him a bit. A little bit. Yeah. But yeah, with all the carnage and with all the stoppages, the first quarter actually lasted 45 minutes, but the scoreline was 14-13 cats at quarter time. So nothing in it. Interestingly, and this did, did seem like a bit of a sign of things to come. Richmond won the tackle count in that first quarter by seven, I think it was. I think it was 19-12. And they were attacking the ball harder and it showed. Mm, they were. Random stat, though. It actually took the Tigers seven and a half minutes to take their first mark of the game. Oh, yeah. I think they only had seven marks in the first, like, 
25 minutes or something of mm. game. It was crazy. Yeah, it was nuts. Yeah. Uh, in the second quarter, Vlosten was on the bench to start, so that was good to see. He wasn't in his uniform anymore. He was in the civilian clothes now. And, you know, when they stretched him off, he was taking all the tape off his hands and fingers and stuff, so you could tell that oh, he was... We, we knew he was done. Yeah. yeah. So the Cats were very dominant in the second, but some of the signs were there because they missed a couple of shots that I really felt they should have made. So Myers had a huge intercept mark about 40 metres out that he missed. Should have been a certain goal with about nine minutes left in the second. Tui missed one about a minute later after that. So although they had the run of the play and they were playing really well, with the knowledge of hindsight... I dare say the second quarter is kind of where they lost it, even though they dominated. There was a period where they had nine of the first ten inside 50s, but they didn't have a lot to show for it. It's interesting because I guess I've only watched the game once and you've obviously got the benefit of having re-watched it. Yeah, I kind of remember it being even more dominant from the Cats. Obviously, I don't quite remember the misses the same way that, that you've sort of had a chance to, to see again. And again, with the benefit of hindsight. Uh, and they, were, they dominated play. But they just weren't dominating the scoreboard mm. enough. That was the problem. Which quite often is the, the key thing. I actually think the, the key moment of the game was the broken tackle and goal to Martin with less than 90 seconds left in the half. Well, here's the thing. Okay, so here's where I think I jinxed the Cats. So I went with about five minutes left in the second. I went to go and make the snaggers, get the food ready for half time. And that's pretty much when the tide turned. It'll be public enemy number one. Well, it's it's like the point. Because from that point onwards, the, the Tigers outscored the Cats dramatically. Yeah. So I guess that kind of kept the Tigers' heads up at, at that point. And you kind of looked at it and said, oh, they've got a little bit of momentum here when the game it wasn't so much over, but you know, a 21-point lead compared to a 15-point lead. Well, it's funny. With four and a half minutes left, uh, Menegola had a lovely goal, and Bruce exclaimed, they'll be hard to catch from here. I rem- yeah, I remember him saying that. And, and they were up 35-20 at half time, but that late goal to Dusty just seemed to be the crack that they needed to, to get in. And sport is so much about momentum. It's not only about when you have the good momentum, but when you're playing bad too. If you can stop the bleeding, and if you can only keep the opposition to a few scores, you'll be okay to come out of it. And this goes back to that question that I asked you a couple of episodes ago about is it better to have that momentum going into a break or during a quarter and I think in this instance having it come just before the halftime break was perfect for Richard. Yep mentally I think it has a big benefit absolutely. And shock horror. Yes, that's right. Richmond started with a goal before even a minute into the third quarter. So Rewalt had a free kick 20 out, and it was le- legit it was free there, kick. Yep. And by the way, I've got to say, I thought it was actually quite well officiated for the most part. Yeah, yep. But all of a sudden, now the Tigers have the last 10 inside 50s. So the, the tide changed so quickly, late second, early third. Castagna had one from nearly 50 out. And can I just say, on that one, really poor patrolling of the goal line from Geelong. That thing was below the top of the padding. Which you should be able to touch mm, that. Mm, that's that, a good point. That was one I rewatched a couple of times. Yeah, that's just a really good point. Highlights, and I thought that is a big missed opportunity for them. Yeah, so that goal was only a couple of minutes later. So then it was thirty-five, thirty-one, and it was absolutely match on at that point. And look, Geelong did have a Myers. I thought Myers played pretty well actually. Yeah, so he did. he did have that miss in the second, but he had a big goal uh, on the run early-ish in the third there after a lovely chain of handballs. So they got the lead back out to ten. Here's one. With 10 minutes 14 left in the third quarter, BT uses the phrase, really taking the milk out of the Tigers here. Oh. Yeah. Oh, dear. Yeah. BT's, like, in the pantheon of BT commentary, that's... Uh, with, with vitamin R. That's that was a really, that was a really weird one. Oh, that's, that's horrible. That was a really weird one. Uh, then, so, a couple of short kicks led to a Lambert goal. I dare say they weren't 15. Dusty had a sensational kick off the side of the boot, 45 out. And Richmond are up all of a sudden. Only 10 minutes into the third, Richmond are up 45-42. 
Yeah, a lot of skill errors in that quarter, actually, from the Cats. A lot of these 20-metre kicks not hitting the mark, which Geelong are usually quite good by foot. So that, And they like controlling possession, yeah, too. that was very, very surprising to see. Yeah, it was it was guys like Martin, Jaden Short, Shane Edwards. These guys just tore up. Geelong Shane Edwards played very well. Yep. Yeah, they, they killed him in that third quarter. And look, there's a reason that they call it the Premiership quarter. And I, I have to ask a question here. Mm. Paddy Dangerfield sitting in the forward line in the third quarter when Richmond make their move. The Tigers kick four goals, two to one goal, three, and Paddy Dangerfield barely left the forward 50 for Geelong. Mm. Is that a mistake? I mean, obviously it is. I shouldn't, I shouldn't say, is it a mistake? It's, but how big a mistake is it? Well, that? given Gablet was a bit underdone, it's a bit surprising that he spent... How long was he there for? Pretty much the entire quarter. Really? I, See, I didn't remember seeing that. I, I didn't remember noticing that. I don't actually know if he attended a single centre bounce in wow. that quarter. Wow. Yeah, that's, that's, that's very surprising given Gary Ablett's woes. And it's funny, that's a really good segue. So there was a sensational mark that Guthrie took on Nankervis, yep. climbed his back. Very nice. Definitely mark of the game. Don't know if it was play of the game. Dusty had a few goals. No, definitely probably, mark, mark And that, that handball that Gaz had was bloody good too. But then Gaz, with about two minutes left or two and a half minutes left in the third, he tried a little toe poke goal and he just couldn't even make contact. And then he fell on his shoulder and he's hurt again. And clearly that's when they should, he, he never should have played another second after that, in my opinion. That's when he was done. Well, the thing is, if your shoulder's bung, and you think about it when you're running, you get a lot of your propulsion through your arms, and obviously the shoulder not being able to, to go, he's losing a little bit of his speed, he's losing a little bit of his explosiveness, and that's probably what cost him in that in that sort of instance. And Yeah, usually he would run on and kick that you know, 10 times out of 10, but I, I think the shoulder actually cost him in that, and... Going back to what I said earlier, I, I really believe that he was a big part in Geelong. Well, because it was still a game at that stage. And in that fourth quarter is when Richmond absolutely ripped it apart. Mm. So Gaz started on the bench in the fourth. And you're thinking, okay, he's done. That's probably the right decision. But he came back on at the 11 minute 43 mark. So he only actually sat for the first five or so minutes or not even of the fourth quarter. And I think that probably turned out to be a mistake. Uh, Prestia had a big goal. Lynch had a goal from a mark one meter out, and he had a shocker of a game. He, he, didn't actually he did look nothing. Like, he didn't look like he even knew it was coming to him until it sort of landed. In yeah, his lap. and it's about all he did all game. And him and Rewalt both didn't have spectacular games, but they hit the scoreboard, so they probably did their jobs. Yeah, and I, I will say this about Lynch: he did drop back fairly late. He kind of did what Nan Curvis usually does. So he was kind of when uh, when Geelong made their move, kind of unfortunately after the the sickening blow to Sam Simpson. Where, uh, where men and gold Yeah, land friendly on. fire, that's yeah. right. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, and, and I mean, I remember when that happened, I stupidly allowed myself to think, oh, maybe the Cats are a 2 to 3% chance of get, coming back in this. Well, men and gold kicked the goal straight after that from like fi- nearly 55 out. It was yeah, a huge goal. So, and at that stage, the score was 66-50. So they did have, with with seven, seven and a half, yeah. seven minutes left, they did still have, have hope at that stage. Yeah. Yeah. But then I think Richmond just went bang, bang, bang from there and it was all she wrote. How's this? When Simpson got wheeled off the field, I heard the crowd going, 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. They were trying to start the wave. Maybe, Have you ever seen the wave at the footy? Hang on, maybe they were maybe they were predicting how long it would take them to get off the field with the stretcher. <laughs> it took a lot longer than that. Yeah, it did. That no, quarter went no. for nearly 45 minutes too. That was, so it actually yeah. felt like a normal game. 
You know, even though there were four <laughs> minutes left every quarter, with all the stoppages, it was about a normal length game. But have you? Do you remember seeing the wave at the footy? No. Like that's very unusual. No, I don't know if it's those Queenslanders that don't know what they're doing. Well, it, yeah, it's, they're at the wrong sport. It's very much an international cricket sort of thing. Yeah, it's a cricket thing. It's that's a, right. Well, they a, do it at the basketball, yeah, but not with the count. It's a Perth Wildcats, Newcastle Falcons. With yeah, four, yeah, four we, talk, of yeah a we talked about that one. Can't win. Mm. Yeah, okay, so I've got a couple of stats here that I think were incredibly interesting. So, in the game, both teams had 26 forward half interceptions. Mm-hmm. Richmond outscored Geelong from those interceptions 64 to 16. Wow. Well, like I said, Myers missed that key one. That's the one that sticks in my mind. Yep. Yeah. That's yeah, your, that's huge. That's your ball oh, game. Yeah, absolutely. That's your ball game right there. Absolutely it is. But another thing that I saw today as well, and just, you know, going on from the whole. How bloody good was Dusty Martin in that game? Love him or hate him, he was phenomenal. Oh, and he just cherry on top with that goal with about a minute left in the fourth. You know, his well, fourth goal. I'll get to that just in a typical, second, actually. Typical, like, he played superbly well. So his four goals, have a guess how long he had the ball in his hand for those four goals. Oh, a few seconds, probably. 7.34 yeah. seconds. Yep, snaps. Just, quick snaps. Just quick decisions. Yep. Yeah, really, really brilliant. And yeah, as, as you say, that fourth one, how fitting was it that he intercepted a pass that was going to Dangerfield and then broke a Dangerfield tackle before kicking that as well? I mean... Yep. And it locked in the Norm Smith. If He probably already had it locked in by that stage, but yep. it absolutely locked it in at that point. Yeah. So I've got another couple of questions for you before we get into some of the random stats. We've obviously spoken about the asterisk season. Can we definitely say that after more than 110 days on the road, the asterisk is massive on this one, but in the favour of the Tigers? They've done something that no other team has done before and probably won't ever do again with any luck. Oh, this is crazy. Like, Yes, you need the like, luck. Like I said earlier, you need the asterisk because you need to contextualise it. You need to say there were five less games and there were four less minutes in quarters and blah, 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 blah. But for a team that barely left Melbourne late in the season last year... Barely played in Melbourne this year after round one, maybe. I don't even know if they played in round one at, at the G. But yeah, absolutely superb. It, it, huge. How, huge win. How fucking big is this footnote going to be? Well, yeah, I be know. massive. Where do you think they stack up against that Brisbane team and that Hawthorne team of the last 20 years? I have a feeling that the Brisbane team would beat them. I, I think they probably would. I think the Hawthorne game would be very, very close. I think you'd probably find that would be one that could easily be swung by a goal here and there. I mean, that Brisbane team was next yeah, level. Yeah, they were magnificent. Absolutely next level. Yeah, I'd give them the edge. I'm a bit with you. The Hawthorne team would yeah. be... I'd probably still give the edge to that Hawthorne team, I dare say, but geez, it'd be close. You put it this way, you wouldn't have seen Michael Voss stuck in a, a pocket or a forward no, line no. while the game was there to be taken. So, And we do tend to favour nostalgia in the older teams, so maybe as the dust settles on this one. But um, but it's it's just so weird, Shui. When we were growing up, Richmond were good at being bad. Team nine, they were. They were perennially mediocre. They were so good at being bad. There was one year where they finished fifth, and they lost to the team that finished ninth in the finals, who shouldn't have even been there, Carlton. But because of the Essendon supplement scandal, they weren't allowed to compete in the finals. So they even managed to lose to a ninth team. They were just terrible. And so to think that they've now won three of the last four is just crazy. Absolutely it, crazy. I don't think it's bad for the game. No, oh, good on them. I, I mean, it's, hats off. Yeah. Uh, it's superb. Yeah. And this this comes to my what caught my attention on, on the Twitter. So I saw a thing today on Twitter where they had a clip from Footy Classified from 10 years ago. And the Footy Classified team with 
Gary Lyon included, and I miss him on Classified. I wish he was still on. Obviously, he had those dramas with Billy and stuff. We won't get into that. But they were they were interviewing Benny Gale, and they had this ten year battle plan called Winning Together, right? And one of the goals of their plan was three premierships in this ten year period, and they were the laughing stock. Everyone, wow. you know, and and I dare say for good reason, because like I said, they were so good at being bad or so good at being mediocre that you couldn't fathom them getting one, one let alone three, let alone yeah. three. Yeah, wow. yeah, so. The goals included eradication of the club's debt, which at that stage was over a million dollars, at least 75,000 members, which was more than twice what they had in 2010. It just seemed complete fantasy, but hey, hats off to them. They did it. He could actually be the greatest of all time in that position. Who, Benny Gale? Yeah. Yeah, well, jeez, pretty successful CEO. I mean, to have that vision and execute it as well. When it's that lofty, like that, yeah. Bloody good player in his own right, too. And I dare say, so those Richmond teams of the 90s, they had him in the ruck, they had Richo up forward, they had Campbell, Campbell. they had Daffy, they had Knights, they had uh, Gaspar. They had all these good players, and they just couldn't do anything with them. Hey, maybe they all needed to get into front office positions. so true. Should we round this off with a few stats? Because I know you love them. All right. So I've got quite a few things that I that I found online. So Harry Taylor played his thirty first final. Joel Selwood played his thirty fourth. Tied for fourth all time and third all time respectively. Yeah, that's incredible. Gary Ablett would have been the third oldest premiership player behind Michael Tuck in nineteen ninety one and Essendon's Charlie Hardy in nineteen twenty four had that one. Joel Selwood became just the sixth player to captain aside two hundred times joining Stephen Kernahan, Dick Reynolds, Nick Rewalt, Ted Whitten, and Michael Voss. Wow. So some very, very good Most blokes there. would kill just to play 200 games, let alone captains. Exactly. Selwood and Ablett would have tied the second longest gap between premierships at 13 years, trailing only Michael Tuck, mm. who went 15 years. And we talked about gaps in America last we week. We did, we yep. did. Uh, players winning flags with two teams, not that rare. 30 players have done it. But Luke Dalhouse would have been the first Western Bulldog to win with a second team. Yes, I saw that during the week. Yeah, never cool. had, never eventuated. Um, I don't know, 30's not heaps in over 100 years of the competition. True. I guess a lot of guys were one-team players back in the day. That yeah, probably wasn't, yeah. wasn't as much moving around. Well, yeah, with modern free agency. Like, yeah. I, rem- I remember when Tony Lockett left St Kilda for Sydney. That seemed Huge, like such yeah, a big deal big news, at the time. Yeah, Whereas yeah. now, yeah, guys play with multiple teams. Paddy Dangerfield's now 269 games without a premiership. He's very quickly moving his way up the list there, unfortunately. Not a good one there. Um, while I was actually checking that out, I also noticed a guy named Ted Hall who played for St Kilda between 1897 and 1902. He played in 62 games before being part of a winning team. Wow. And he was 1-72 in his entire career. Wow. Wow, indeed. Jeez, poor bastard. Yeah. Um, <laughs> A couple for Richmond as well. Dusty Martin, as you know, probably most people know now, the only three-time Norm Smith medalist going ahead of Gary Ayres, Andrew McLeod, and Luke Hodge on two. And Trent Cotchin became just the eighth skipper to captain three premierships, which I thought was, was pretty good. Yes, cool. very impressive. Yep, yep. So a lot of great stats out there. And at least Geelong won something with Jordan Clark winning the grand final sprint at quarter time. I think he would finish just ahead of a Richmond guy as well. And now, what made Stu say bloody hell? Yeah, a bit unusual doing this in the middle of a segment, but a grand final theme bloody hell this week, which takes us back to a 2017 clash between Josh Jenkins' Adelaide Crows and the Geelong Cats featuring Harry Taylor. In the week leading up to the game, Jenkins unfortunately had to attend a funeral and at the wake consumed some dodgy ham. The result was that he ended up with a really bad case of gastro. He lost seven kilos and nearly missed out on the game. Jeez. So after the game finished, Taylor shook hands with Jenkins and you know congratulated him on the game. 
And when he took his hand away... (laughs) (laughs) We know it's coming. Jenkins found about 25 grams of deli ham in his palm. (laughs) Or, quote, that small an amount that you could have it hidden in your sock. (laughs) Yes, Harry Taylor had committed to the joke that much that he played an entire AFL game with deli ham in his sock. I hope it wasn't the sock he put his mouth guard in. <laughs> so for coming up with a classic gag and committing to it, even though it would have been an absolute pain in the ass. And I, having a win. And having a win. All I can say is bloody ham. <laughs> bl- hell. Bl- bloody hell. Sorry. <laughs> Happy presumed retirement, Hammy Taylor. Oh, dear. Bloody hell. Quick little tidbits in the AFL world. Now, we'll do a bit more on this next week, but a few little bits and pieces uh, before we do a post-mortem next week before we get on to the NRL. Yeah, actually, just quickly, the, the post-mortem. So next week, we'll start looking at our season in review. So we'll start rating the teams and... Give them a grade. Give them a grade, that sort of thing. So in the news, though, Brad Crouch has nominated St Kilda as his team of choice for next year. If I'm the Saints, I probably wouldn't give up much more than maybe a second rounder for him. Probably a third, but we'll see how that all goes. The fallout at GWS continues. Jai Caldwell has requested a move to Essendon and Zach Landon's nominated the Eagles as his preferred destination. So I think that's six players now that yep, have Yeah, the mass exodus continues. And look, we've already mentioned that it was Gary Ablett's last game, but Brisbane's Alan Christensen also officially retired as a premiership player from his first season with Geelong in 2011. Didn't even realise he was still knocking it he out. He has barely played, unfortunately. That into the list. Really random stat, though, about Christensen. So he played 68 games with Brisbane and 65 at Geelong for a total of 68 wins and 65 losses. Mm. The only other dual team player with 50-plus games for each team to match their games played for their two clubs with their win-loss record is Kurt Tippett. It's a real mouthful of a stat, this one, but Tippett played 104 games with Adelaide and 74 at the Swans for 104 wins and 74 losses. That is crazy. How the hell do you come up with this stuff, Stewie? Where do you get this from? Well, I went back and looked through every single player in the history of the (laughs) AFL in the last one. No, look, I have my sources. Uh, Very good. So, Stewie, as I mentioned, I didn't actually get to watch in the end. I heard a progress score of 20 nil, and I thought, nah, bugger it, I'll just watch the AFL again. But in the end, it was a bit closer than that. The Storm beating the Panthers 26-20. Can I just start off by saying, I bloody picked it last week. (laughs) You did. Storm by six, and I nearly picked the AFL as well, because I jokingly said Richmond by 37. You did. So I did well. Now, look, really shaky start for the Storm. They they knocked on within 30 seconds of the opening kick. But for some amazing defense from the Storm, they probably would have conceded an early try. And thankfully for them, they were able to get some really nice position down the field. And Justin Olin was actually awarded a penalty try in the fourth minute. Tyron May actually came in from the side and used his foot to block the try right in the corner, which you can't do, obviously. Being a penalty try, it actually took the conversion from the corner to directly uh, in front. So yeah. a huge call. Yep. The Storm were actually really lucky not to concede straight away, though. Stephen Crichton was called for interference for running out on the outside shoulder of a defender as Josh Mansour scored in the corner. But it was all about the Storm's defense in the first 20 minutes. They just repelled wave after wave from the Panthers. It definitely felt like Suliasi Vunavalu's intercept of a long pass from Nathan Cleary. That was a huge turning point. It looked like the Panthers absolutely had to score, and then he runs 80 meters for a try that makes it 16-0 a bit of an early nail in the coffin. So, you know, if that wasn't it, Cameron Smith recovering a ball that was knocked out of his hands to score between the posts right on halftime was surely the nail in the coffin. And if that wasn't the nail in the coffin, (laughs) Ryan Pappenhausen breaks through the line, basically gave a a, a cheeky little dummy outside and and managed to break and run 75 metres to make it 26-0. That absolutely has to be game over. And then it happened. 
the, the turnaround began. Like I said, momentum. Teams will always get multiple shots at momentum. It's what you do with it. Yeah. There was a pretty dodgy opening try for the Panthers. Isaiah Yo appeared to have actually run behind his own player, which you cannot do. Um, he put a grubber through to Brian To'o, which left the commentators kind of questioning the bunker's knowledge of the rules as they allowed the try to stand. Yes, there was a bit of controversy there. I there, read to there was. And just before I get into the next little bit, I actually heard that, that Cameron Smith at one stage said to the umpire, look... I understand that you guys want to make this an exciting game, but how about giving us some of the calls as well? I think the Storm are looked after fairly well by the Oh, players, yes. So. Well, Roy and HG, I know you're not a massive fan of them, but Roy and HG have a bit of a shtick about uh, Cam being a bit of an umpire. So. Well, he yeah. well and truly copped it. <laughs> but yeah, there was... And again, before I get back to, I guess, the rest of the, the scoring plays, there was this one play on 66 minutes. I don't know if you saw it. A penalty got awarded to Penrith, and they've blasted this kick down the field, trying to go into touch. But Ryan Pappenhausen just launched himself over the line. He must have gone a good three or four metres over the line to tap it back in and retain possession. Keep it in play. Which was sensational. Kind of shades of when you first see the cricketers taking the catch over the boundary. <laughs> it was like that. Yeah, that was yeah. the sort of feeling you have. Yeah, desperation. Yeah, and, and hearing the commentators remark about how sensational it was was yeah, was was just great. So then Stephen Crichton scored for the Panthers. Jerome Hughes was sent off for the Storm. Josh Mansell scored for the Panthers. Brandon Smith gets sent off for the Storm. And it, it's just a wave from the Panthers as they keep coming through. Mm. And with mere seconds left in the game, Nathan Cleary scored to make it 26-20. to 20. Really, really heads-up play, though, because he scored with about six seconds left in the game. Now, if he goes to take the conversion, it probably runs those six seconds out and the game's over. So he declines the kick. He says, no, nah, we don't want to take the kick. doesn't matter. Go back. So they actually gave him one play with a chance to tie it up. I mean, they had to go the full length of the field with one tackle. But it was one of those plays that sort of started to look a little bit... You know those NFL plays where the player's cornered and they throw multiple laterals and all of a sudden somebody gets a block and off they go. It kind of felt a bit like that. It was brewing towards somebody getting through. But ultimately, after about eight or nine passes, they, they turned it over and that was the game. So, yeah, it was a an absolute cracker of a game. And... As I said, it felt like the Panthers got the raw end of the deal from the umpiring, and the result was they basically ended up with a lot of scoreboard pressure, and I think the Panthers just kind of felt like they needed to take the game on a little bit too early instead of just kind of settling down and saying, right. Being patient. Yeah, just, just eating into the score bit Poised. by bit, and, and that's sort of what led to a couple of their turnovers. And Yeah, it just seemed like everything that that, uh, that Viliam Kekau did was just wrong. Like, he fumbled, he had poor plays of the ball, just... No poise, unfortunately. So, yeah. And there was a bit of a selection uh, controversy because one of the Panthers players who's pretty much played every game or has played a lot lately sat on the bench for quite a chunk yeah, of the game. Yeah, so you'd be talking about Brent Naden. So That's right, a lot yeah. in the press about that. So they actually went in favour of Tyrone May. Now, May was great all season. He probably had one of the leading tackle percentages for the, for the Panthers. He was superb against South Sydney last week. But Justin Olam is an absolute beast. So you've got to have a bigger body, and that's where Naden would have been really, really important. And he's quite explosive too, so he, he would have been probably quite useful when oh, they went down early. Exactly. Well, it's, it's funny you say that, because I've actually got a note here that he came on and he averaged nearly 11 metres a carry, which is a, it's a pretty that's decent a amount. Chunk of field, yeah. It's a pretty time. decent amount. So yeah, he was obviously a really big part of their comeback. And yeah, this is going to be a massive what-if for Coach Ivan Cleary in the off-season. I kind of feel bad for him. One little stat, I guess, before we finish things off. 
when Cameron Smith debuted and, and happy retirement to him. Yeah, so he got his fairy tale. Gaz didn't in the AFL, but, uh, but Cam did. did. Yeah, yep. So four of the current Storm players weren't even two years old when he debuted. Wow. Which is nuts, including Jada Turahui, who was about eight months old at the time. Shit. So that, that was a yeah a great finish. And Ryan Pappenhausen, a, a very worthy winner of the Clive Churchill medal for best on ground. I thought he was absolutely magnificent. So, yeah, really great game. And Melbourne keep winning. Melbourne keep winning, exactly. Yep. So I suppose we should probably head across the Pacific now. You've got some NFL news for us. Yeah, another interesting weekend. Some crazy finishes and some some stats that will make your eyebrows raise. Here's one for starters. So I said that uh, I was amped for Pittsburgh and Tennessee. It was the sixth time that two teams of 5-0 and or better met in the regular season. All other times, the winner of said game has gone on to the Super Bowl. So, Pittsburgh. My eyebrows are raised. So, yeah, perhaps on that stat, Pittsburgh could be Super Bowl bound after winning 27-24. And luckily, it was actually one of the games that was on. So, my choice was between that or Carolina and New Orleans on the other channel. And that was actually, funnily enough, 27-24 as well. But I didn't watch any of that. I decided I'd fully commit to the Battle of the Undefeateds. And Pitt started really well. So, they were 24-7 at halftime. So I went to bed thinking, okay, Pitt Pitt have got this in the bag. But uh, uh, Tennessee actually came back. They just couldn't get over the line. They probably just left a little bit too much. Now, Pat Mahomes has got himself another record, hasn't he? Yes, yet another passing record. The fastest to 90 passing TDs. The Chiefs had a big win over the Broncos overnight, 43-16. Mahomes had a fairly quiet game by his standards, 200 yards and one TD, but they won very convincingly. The Chiefs have only run the ball more than they've passed on two separate occasions since he took over as starting quarterback, which would explain why he got there so quick. Funnily enough, it was in the game where he broke the record against the Bills, which was... So they've actually played two games since we recorded. They played last week against the Bills and now against the Broncos. Two very good wins. The Bills were previously undefeated at that stage. So that was a big win too. Yeah, he was he was actually three games faster than Dan Marino. I think that was the record because he, he did it in his 37th game. I think Marino had it in 40. And I've got to say, that makes Marino's record or previous record even more impressive because the modern game is so different now that they just pass all the time. You know, So guys like Joe Burrow at Cincinnati... His passing stats already are huge because they just continually throw the ball. Speaking of quarterbacks, now, Ryan Fitzgerald won't be too happy because Fitzmagic's been benched. The Dolphins have elevated... <laughs> Fitzmagic? Yeah, right. Uh, right. Is that his name? That's what they nicknamed him, yeah. <laughs> oh, okay, sorry. So, so he's thrown a touchdown with eight different teams, which is crazy, and I think we might have actually talked about that before. But the Miami Dolphins have decided, in spite of that, to elevate their top draft pick to a Tagovailoa. Uh, over Fitzpatrick as their starting QB. So Fitzpatrick now sits on the bench after having a really good start to the season and and helping the Dolphins get a few surprising wins. Did you name a player or did you just clear your throat? Tua Tagovailoa. Another oh. one of those hard names. That's, I, that's a, that's I got one a, this week. That is a shocker, isn't it? Former Alabama quarterback. And look, he'll be excellent. He'll be a very good player. But geez, it's hard on poor Fitzpatrick who's had a very good season mm, so far. Amazing. And I'll tell you what. We'd have him over at the Colts. We'd prefer him to, to Phil Rivers, I reckon. But anyway. Continuing on the quarterback trail as well. Did you see Daniel Jones during the week? Oh, that stumble. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no the, one within 20 yards of him. Yeah, now, I think that might have been Tuesday night football because of all these postponements and schedule changes. But yeah, yeah he ran. I mean, he had he a good ran, run. He ran 80 yards. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. No one within Kiwi of him yeah. was stacked. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, those, those uh, New York teams aren't doing too well. Nope. 
Tampa Bay had another big win, this time 45-20 to over Las Vegas, who have had a pretty good start to the season so far. So Tom Brady and the Tampa Bay fans would be pretty happy. But a bit of a asterisk or footnote on this one for additional information. Footnote. Uh, the entire Vegas offensive line couldn't tr- practice due to contract tracing. And the offensive line is very, very important offensively. It's pretty important, yeah. So it defies belief why the league actually brought the game forward rather than pushing it back. back. Yeah. Hmm. Tom Brady. Hmm. Mm. What's the opposition? Mm. Anyway, <laughs> uh, and speaking of Tom Brady, New England have dropped to two and four after Cam Newton threw three picks and less than a hundred yards against San Francisco. Jimmy G enjoyed beating his old team. He used to be the backup for Tom Brady. But he had two picks of his own, so the two of them actually combined for zero touchdowns and five interceptions. Cleveland defeated Cincinnati by three on the back of five touchdowns from Baker Mayfield. The teams combined for 34 points in the fourth quarter. Baker's fifth TD was with 11 seconds left to go ahead. But perhaps the most crazy game of the weekend was Detroit and Atlanta. Now, Detroit won 23-22 on the back of a literally death last second or no time well, left on yeah, the well, clock. After the, after the um, zeros, yeah, yeah. touchdown pass from Matt Stafford. And by the way, it was a fantastic drive. After Todd Gurley accidentally scored a touchdown. Yes, you heard it right. Accidentally Ooh. scored a touchdown. He just wanted the first down. They were already up. Kind of stumbled into the end zone or it didn't even get fully into the end zone, but the ball broke the plane and... The reason it was a bad thing was because it left enough time for Detroit to march down the field and get the win. So he actually just wanted the first down. He didn't want the touchdown. But unfortunately, the ball crossed the plane. Atlanta's woes continue. I believe they're now 1-6. and six. Credit where credit's due, though. That was a hell of a drive from Stafford. Oh, absolutely it was. And I said he hasn't won shit, and that's true of the playoffs. And he's not a terrible player. Again, we'd rather have him than Phil Rivers at Indianapolis. But yeah, that was that was a fantastic final drive. But it's really funny. It just makes me think of Madden. And they're the things you used to do in Madden. Like, oh, I want the first down, but I don't want the touchdown because yeah. I don't want to give him a last So you just fun. run along the line. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I actually remember a crazy story from probably nearly 15 years ago now. After Brandon Stokely had left the Colts and he'd gone to Denver, he caught a touchdown pass, but he intentionally ran the long way. So he... he had separated himself from the defender yes. by a really long way, right? Yeah. And rather than running it into the end zone, he ran vertically across the entire yeah, end zone it, yeah. and then went in and killed another 20 seconds or so. And he actually said in the post-game interview, he'd learnt that from playing the game Madden. <laughs> wow. So, you know, this is this really symbiotic relationship between computer games and, and sport. Crazy. So, yeah, another big, big weekend in the NFL and we've got uh, Monday Night Football still to come. And just one little thing as well. The Washington football team have decided on their name for next season. Ah, uh, yes, they have. The Washington, the Washington football, football team. team. Yes, they might as well yes. call themselves the Washington Purgatory. Like. Well, cynically, though, they're going to make a lot of money because they would have sold out the old Redskins. And I've said this before, but they would have sold out the old Redskins stuff. They'll get a few years of the Washington football stuff that they'll sell, and then they'll pick a new team, and then they'll sell that too. So pretty savvy financially, mm, I dare say. Well played, Washington. Mm. So in the soccer world, Stewie, we've got an update on the VAR drama in the Everton Liverpool game. Yeah, this was absolutely crazy last week, and it's got even crazier. So firstly, VAR disallowed what would have been a late winner to Jordan Henderson due to Sadio Mane being offside. But Mark Halsey, a former Premier League referee, has actually said that the goal should have stood. Oh? Which is not a great start. And to make matters worse, the video assistant David Coote was actually unaware that he could have sent Everton goalkeeper Jordan Pickford off for that really bad tackle on Virgil van Dijk. Mm, Which you mentioned last week. Because van Dijk was already offside. So Mm. double ouch for Liverpool fans there. Not great at all. Pretty low bar to know the fucking rules when you're an umpire. Yeah, you'd think that. Yeah. 
Apparently, yeah. it's not so common anymore. Mm, well done. So a lot of really great results. We'll get to Leeds very soon, I promise. <laughs> <laughs> but no, look, a lot of games this round. So West Ham continued Man City's pain with a one-all draw. Liverpool beat lowly Sheffield United 2-1. And a hat-trick to Patrick Bamford in just 19 minutes saw Leeds destroy Aston Villa 3-0 to sit in fifth spot. And if I'm not mistaken, the first hat-trick by a Leeds player since Viduka in 03. Hmm. Well, I saw the in, highlights well, in, the, in the Premier League. In the Premier League, League. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I saw the highlights. Some um, and yes, they've been out of the Premier League for a long time, which is what my girlfriend says. She's <laughs> like, "Yeah, that's that." That's great. But yeah, no, lovely highlights. His, Very aggressive, playing some good aggressive yeah. soccer. Yeah, his second and third goals were absolute stunners. He probably actually should have scored probably five. I think in that game, though, he was he was very very prominent. Chelsea and Man United played out a nil-all draw, although there was an absolutely disgraceful non-penalty late in the first half. Harry Maguire from Man United basically tackled Cesar as Piliqueta, just dragged him to the ground and sort of lent in and put the defensive header out. Mm. It was seriously something that would have been an obvious free kick in the AFL because he had his arms right around his shoulder and dragged him down. Mm. So how that wasn't called is beyond me. Everton also had their unbeaten run come to an end. Southampton beat them 2-0, and Leicester moved back into fourth with a 1-0 win over Arsenal, thanks to a winner from Jamie Vardy in the 80th minute. So lots of really cool stuff happening around the EPL, lots of surprise results, lots of surprise teams as well. Mm. So it's yeah, really, Wide open. It really is. It really is. Now, something else that's going on in the world of soccer, there's speculative proposals for a European Premier League which would be comprised of the continent's top clubs, reportedly backed by FIFA, and it's been met with some real stinging criticism. From Well, how do they fit that in the schedule? Well, that's, funnily enough, part of the yeah. part of the whole problem. So there's talk of this league. It's going to be an $8.5 billion league, which would be made up of the continent's top clubs like Real Madrid, Barcelona, Liverpool, Man United, Bayern Munich, and it looks like it would be funded by secured bank loans for, I guess, the TV broadcast deals that would pay that off. Mm. The worrying part about that, though, is, quote, each of the participating clubs could receive hundreds of millions of pounds to participate. So... The rich get richer. The rich get richer, exactly. Yeah. And and as you mentioned before... In no salary cap legs. Exactly. And that's the problem. Yeah. It's If it was a sport no that had a salary cap, fair enough, but there's, yep. there is no parity. And this is at the detriment of the local leagues and the Champions League. So a lot of these other sort of leagues where a lot more teams can be involved and potentially make some more money, they get screwed over yet again while these super mega rich clubs get even richer. Mm. It's farcical. Mm, That'll be interesting to see how that plays out. Yep. And now, this week in sport history. So we're going to do a slightly different this week in sports. special this week. Another one. Yeah, well, last week we did the the baseball special with obviously the World Series going on. This week we're doing an October twentieth special yes, because there was are. so much happening on the twentieth. Indeed, October twentieth, nineteen forty six. Frank Sino returns the opening kick off one hundred and five yards in the Chicago Cardinals versus New York Giants game. The first player to return a ball that far. The record now belongs to Corderell Jackson, who was playing for the Minnesota Vikings in 2013 and returned the opening kick off 109 yards against the Green Bay Yeah, I actually remember that one. It was crazy. And to be clear, Antonio Cromartie also has a 109-yard return, but that was from a missed field goal. Interesting stat about those two. Both of them were actually at the Metrodome as well, as Cromartie's was against the Vikings. Mm. October 20, 1968. American Dick Fosbury, using his unconventional technique, wins the men's high jump gold medal with 2.24 metres at the Mexico City Olympics. The Fosbury flop, of course, then became the standard as the most effective technique in high jump. 
The record now sits at 2.45 metres, held by Cuban Javier Sotomayor, who achieved that jump in 1993, the longest-standing record in the history of men's high jump. The women's record of 2.09 metres, held by Bulgarian Stefka Kostadinova, has been in place since August 1987. October 20th, 1976, the Philadelphia 76ers acquired superstar Julius Irving from the New Jersey Nets for $3 million. This came just months after the four ABA franchises, the Nets, Indiana Pacers, Denver Nuggets and San Antonio Spurs, joined the league as part of the merger during the 76 offseason. However, the merger cost the Nets their star player in Irving, and as part of the merger, the four ABA franchises were forced to pay the NBA an entry fee of $3.2 million while the Nets had to fork out another $4.8 million to the New York Knicks for territorial invasion. <laughs> so with those two huge amounts that were due, the Nets had no option but to trade their best player, the reigning three-time ABA MVP, to the Sixers just 24 hours before the first game of the 76-77 season. The Sixers would go on to be a perennial playoff team, and Irving would be an MVP in 1981, a champion in 83, and a five-time All-NBA first-team player while the Nets would finish the 76-77 season 22-60, and 60, the year after winning the ABA Finals, good enough for dead last in mm, the NBA. Mm. I do think I've heard a name better than the Jack Chumpers now, though. Territorial Invaders? The, ter- <laughs> the New York Territorial Invaders. <laughs> October 20, 1988, LA become the first US city to simultaneously have champions in the NBA and Major League Baseball after the LA Dodgers beat the Oakland A's four games to one. The Lakers had previously beaten the Pistons a few months earlier. Other dual sport championship cities in the States include the Detroit Red Wings and Lions in 1952, the Nye Mets and Jets in 69, the Pittsburgh Pirates and Steelers in 79, and the Steelers and Penguins in 2009. And the reason we mention this, of course, is because... Well, let's see. The Lakers just won the championship and the Dodgers might win the championship. And wait, there's (gasps) more. Tampa Bay won the NHL. We're going to have a dual sport no matter what. Ah. Yeah. I didn't even realise that. Yeah, there you go. There you go. So we we have ourselves a guarantee. That's right. And I do like the fact that your nine nets are your favourite squadron. Always. (laughs) Always. Guaranteed. Now, October 20th, 1995, the Houston Rockets, admittedly, Sansa Kim Olajuwon, defeat the Perth Wildcats in the semi-finals of the McDonald's Championships, 116-72 to at London Arena, yep. the biggest margin of the tournament's history at that time. The Wildcats actually hung pretty tough in the first half, and the Rockets broke the game open with an 18-0 run over a six-minute stretch in the third quarter. A young Robert Ory led the Rockets with 20 points and 12 rebounds, while Clyde Drexler had 14 of his 16 in the third quarter after shooting just one of seven in the first half. Even good old Pete Chilcutt had 13 because all the starters <laughs> sat out for the fourth quarter for Houston. Scotty Fisher topped for Perth with 18 points and 12 boards. And if you're actually interested, the game is on YouTube. So you Yeah, I remember watching thing. it on Saturday or Sunday basketball way back in the day on Channel 10 there. But uh, yeah, I might, I might give that one a look again. I, I noticed that it was on YouTube when we, when we looked at this. This week in sport history. So Stewie, unfortunately the weather's really wreaked havoc in the WBBL with only three out of the eight matches with a result, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, look, it's really nice to see the campaign started. It's unfortunately not nice to see that it was in Sydney because mm. obviously there's a lot of rain. Yeah, good to see at least Perry back too, though. This is very true. And I will also say it is really superb to see how many of the teams are taking a knee to support the Black Lives Matter campaign. For anyone out there who says this isn't our fight, you've obviously never been discriminated against for a character trait you've got no control over. So mm. 
So, yeah, as you mentioned, we've had five of eight matches abandoned without a result. The Adelaide Strikers and Sydney Sixers match that was decided on Duckworth-Lewis today as well. So we've actually only had two games played in their entirety. Good on the Sixers for having a win. It's not bad when your first three batters are Alyssa Healy, Elise Perry, and Ash Gardner, though. Pretty much the Australian team. Decent start. In the, the other two matches, Darcy Brown took three for 13 and then three for 19 from Amanda Jade Wellington. Saw the Hobart Hurricanes bowled out for just 84. And Laura Wolfhart had 51 off 42, which saw the strikers home with about six overs to spare. Pretty comfortable. And the Brisbane Heat had a pretty comfortable seven-wicket win over the Perth Scorchers behind 53 from Grace Harris. A real lack of middle-order acceleration from the Scorchers, really. Better news for WA teams in the Shield. We escaped a draw against New South Wales, and initially it looked like we might be in a bit of trouble, but there's some roads over there, aren't there? in Adelaide. So New South Wales started six declared for 443. Enrique's had a 167. Solway had an 86. Neville had a 56 not out. Abbott had a 60 not out. Wasn't looking too good for us. Agar two for 106. Gannon one for 102. And they were... The best of the lot. No, they weren't the best, but geez, not many. There wasn't a lot going on there. But then Whiteman had a 114. Cam Green, now what a story he's been. He had a 197. Kelly had an 89, 534. So a very, very good score for the Warriors. But how's this? Green is a bowler who can bat a bit. Mm. Dizzy, oh. He's Dizzy Gillespie. Oh, this is nuts. So let me let me read some Shield stats for you. So again, keep in mind this is a bowler who can bat a bit, right? In his last six Shield matches, he's had a 43, a 45, a 158 not out, a 56, and a 197. A mm, couple of failures at the start then, in the 40s. Yeah, well, <laughs> no, look, he's, he's only 21. Yeah, no, he's brilliant. What can you say about this match? In the words of WC Grace, when you win the toss, bat. If you're in doubt, think about it, then bat. If you, yeah, that's an old Ian Chapel, If you have very it? big doubts, consult a colleague, <laughs> then bat. I'm honestly still not entirely sure why Sean Marsh made the decision to bowl on a fucking road. But at 3 for 71, it actually wasn't looking like too bad a decision. It was just that partnership from Enriques and Solway that just ripped the heart out of the game. And fortunately for us, they decided to declare, which actually gave us an opportunity to get Yeah, that's first, right. Yeah, they were greedy points. for a result. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Decent-ish start from the Warriors, but like New South Wales at 2 for 71, massive partnership. Sam Whiteman and Cam Green, obviously, that's the difference right there. And the 137-run eighth-wicket partnership between Green and Kelly. Abbott was Green brilliant. faced 438 balls. Yeah, that's a lot. That's I mean, get him in the test team. Oh, that's the so. poise we need. I think so. Definitely. That's fantastic. Now, Abbott was brilliant with the ball, 6 for 89. But look, a win and a draw to start things off for the Warriors is a really great result. Abbott, 60 not out and 6 for. He could be knocking on the door of the test team at one stage. There's so many. Yeah. Yeah, no. It, you're feeling a bit more optimistic about Aussie cricket. A little bit, moment, yeah. yeah. A little bit. And on the other road, I mean, in the other game, South Australia and Tasmania also ended in a draw. South Australia initially only got 195, so Tassie would have been licking their lips with only Nielsen scoring anything of note with 64. They had a really good spread of bowling uh, with the wickets there. Then Tassie went into bat, 83 to Wakim, 90 to McDermott. His good start to the season continues. Doran had 112. Timmy Payne had 111, so his good start to the season continues too. Paul Wes Agar, none for 105 after mentioning him last week. But then Travis Head, he had a 171 not out. And again, ends in a draw when South Australia get 347 in their second innings. Yep, this one 
entirely comes down to Trapper's head, basically. They were played off the park for most of this match. Head's ability to just put himself down. Head down. Eh, eh, eh. Like it. Yeah. But no, his ability to be able to bat the entire last day for that 171, it saved the Redbacks from their second straight heavy defeat. Definitely not bad having Callum Ferguson at the other end for a good chunk of that day four as well. And I'm yeah, handy 40. Yeah, and I will say Chad Sayers continues his push for a yes. baggy green. Three for 27 off 29 overs with 17 maidens. And he can swing the ball, so he brings something different. I, yep. I think he's worth a go. Yep. yep. So next week, Victoria start their campaign against Tasmania. South Australia play Queensland. And WA and New South Wales have a rematch. Yeah. Straight away. Back to back. Mm. Yeah. So yeah. they're all starting this Friday. Any updates in the IPL? We've had some low scores, haven't we? Yeah, we've had some real cracking performances with the bat. We've had some really average performances with the bat. We'll start off with some of the good stuff. So Ben Stokes had a 107 not out off 60, which actually undid the 60 off 21 that Hardik Pandya had as the Rajasthan Royals kept their glimmer of hope alive for finals, knocking off the Delhi Capitals. Rudaraj Gaikwad, I believe that's how you pronounce it, had 65 off 51, and there was a 3 for 19 from Sam Curran, which had the Chennai Super Kings beating Bangalore. Nidish Rana's is 81 off 53 and a 64 off 32 from Sunil Narayan, coupled with 3 for 17 from Pat Cummins and 5 for 20 from Varun Chakravarthy, led Kolkata to a win over Delhi. Now on the other side of the fence, the bowling. Trent Bolton, Jasprit, Bumrah absolutely destroyed Chennai early. They had them 4 for 3 at one stage. Quentin de Kock and Ishan Kishan saw Mumbai home inside of 13 overs in that match. Wow. Absolute destruction. Looking forward to seeing Boomer on those Australian decks too this summer. Oh yeah, it's going to be pretty scary. Rolling Thunderbolts, yeah. Pretty scary. Uh, Cole Cutter started 3 for 3 before absolutely staggering to 8 for 84 off their 20 overs. Yikes. In an 8 wicket thumping by Bangalore. In that match, Mohamed Siraj at one stage had figures of 1.3 overs, 3 for none. Wow. Amazing. Amazing. <laughs> Another couple of pretty decent efforts with the bat. Manish Pandey had 83 or 47. He was the catalyst for Hyderabad's eight-wicket win over Rajasthan. And Shikhar Dawan had 106 off 61, but it wasn't enough for Delhi. A balanced attack led by Nicholas Puran's 53 off 28 saw the Kings 11 Punjab get home. This was actually Shikhar Dawan's second consecutive time, the first time it's happened in IPL history. That's surprising. Yeah. It actually took him 168 innings to make his first as well. Wow. So it's even crazier. And to round out this week, all-round nice guy and wicketkeeper extraordinaire, Joss Butler, had 70 or 48 as the Royals <laughs> got over the line against Chennai. Oh, so good Joss. We're really starting to get to the pointy end of the season now. Most teams have three games left. The Royals and Super Kings have two. Chennai are done. For the first time in their history, they will miss the finals. Oh. And one more loss puts Hyderabad in the same bracket. So, and, my, and my Rajasthan Royals are on life support. Well, they're actually not as bad as they looked a couple of games ago. Yeah, okay. They're doing okay. Yeah, yeah. But you've got six teams fighting for four spots. Nearly every game left has finals implications. Mumbai, Delhi and Bangalore definitely in the box seat a game clear of Kolkata in fourth. And Punjab and Rajasthan probably need to win out and hope results go their way. So... We shall see what the next week holds. Indeed. Yep, we'll be knocking on the finals by then. So I believe you want to smash through the tennis quickly. Oh, well played. <laughs> well played. Yeah, there's still a little bit of tennis going on around the traps in Europe right now. We'll start at the Ostrava Open Tennis, which played, funnily enough, in Ostrava. It's about three and a half hours from Prague in the Czech Republic. You this... mean the Ostrava Open because there's three exclamation marks on the court? Of, co- of course. I forgot about the exclamation marks. <laughs> it's so weird. Not just one, but three. But three. Well, they have to make sure that everyone knows that Ostrava... It's Ostrava! It's serious. Yeah, well, serious okay. tennis. Yeah, yep. No, this was sort of a makeup tournament to help some of the players making some cash, getting some match fitness in, that sort of thing. The field in the women's singles was only 28 players. 
with an all-Belarus final, funnily enough, won mm. by Arena Sabalenka, 6-2, 6-2 over Victoria Azarenka. The absolute what-the-hell moment from this tournament, though, came from Azarenka oh, sure did. in her match against Barbara Krejcikova. Oh, crazy. She played this slice drop shot. It spent more time on the net than a teenager who recently discovered pornography. <laughs> It was, it was absurd. Uh, it just sat there. It really there. did, though. It, it really... just sat there. Azarenka uh, actually played in the doubles as well with Elise Mertens. They took care of Kirsten Flipkins of Germany and Demi Schuurs of the Netherlands 6-3-7-5. So a pretty decent tournament for her. On on the You know how when the ball hits the tape and then they do the old, oh, sorry, they put the hand up and the head down. Yeah. Yeah. Jeez, what sort of sorry would you have what, to What say? do you make of that, though? Like, why? Why do they need to apologize? It's it's legal. I think it's, it's in play. Yeah, it's just a token sort of thing. Yeah, I don't get it. I've, I've always said, oh, if you're really sorry, I'll we'll replay Give the point. The, we'll yeah, re- yeah. We'll replay the point. Yeah. No. 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 Yeah, no. It's a bit of a silly one. I've always found that one weird. Yep. Heading west to Belgium now, we, in Antwerp, we had a bit of an upset in the European yeah, Open. Yeah, so close. Unseeded Frenchman Hugo Humbert knocked off Alex Dimonor in the final 6-1-7-6. Humbert played beautifully in this. He controlled most of the rallies with his brutal forehand. Man, lefties, I'm telling you. Hmm. And they just look so different when they play. But he attacked anything weak on the Dimonor serve, and he served at a really high clip himself. Humbert was actually quite lucky to even be there, though. He had to save four match points against Daniel Evans in the semi-final less than 24 hours earlier. So he joins Yuri Vesely, Riley Opelka, and Novak Djokovic as tournament champions this year to have saved at least one match point during the tournament. And so close for Aussie Dimonor. Very, very close. In the doubles, the Aussie-Kiwi pairing of John Pierce and Michael Venus defeated Rohan Bopana and Matway Middlecoop 6-3, 6-4. So a little bit of joy for the Aussies there. And in Cologne, the local boy Alex Sparrow won the Bet One Hulks Championships, smashing Argentine Diego Schwartzman 6-2, 6-1. Smashing all around. Really did. Look, Zverev can be the sort of guy who often relies on his defense to win matches, but like Humbert, he actually really took it to Schwartzman. He was hitting through the lines. He actually used a sublime drop shot, though, to secure the first break in the opening set, and he absolutely cruised. Sash is the form guy at the moment, though. He's 17-3 and three since the restart. He's won the last two tournaments in Cologne, so he's doing really, really well. In the Why do- win a tournament in anti-perspirant deodorant when you can win it in Cologne? <laughs> Sorry. It's pronounced Antwerp. <laughs> Where are the exclamation marks? <laughs> this is this is the extent of my tennis. Yeah. In the doubles as well there. South Africa's Ravan Klaassen and, and Japan's Ben McLaughlin. Solid Japanese name there. Oh, yeah, definitely. Knocked off the German duo of Kevin Kravietz and Andreas Mies 6-2-6-4 in the final there. So some, some good tennis going on. Indeed. So just a quick one on the basketball this week, Stewie. The NBA, this came as a bit of a surprise, it's got to be said, but they've proposed a pre-Christmas Day schedule of 72 games. Initially, it would have no fans in the stands, but hopefully by the end of it, there'd be no All-Star game or All-Star weekend, but they are considering a two-week break at the midpoint, and starting at this time would mean that they could finish in time for the Olympics, and obviously there's several players that would be wanting to play in the Olympics, if they go ahead, of course. Mm. Here's a little bit to unpack here. Firstly, let me say, starting around Christmas Day, I absolutely love that. Christmas Day, NBA, or Boxing Day over here in Australia, it's absolutely a tradition for me, getting to watch those five games with the old man is, is great. And in America, in a normal year, most people don't start watching the NBA until Christmas. Mm, exactly. They, they don't pay attention because there's the end of baseball and there's the NFL. Yeah. I would definitely like to see it maybe a week or so before because opening night on Christmas Day would mean just five games, which is not a great start. Ring ceremonies would be a little bit messed up, that sort of thing. I've got a little bit of an idea, but I just wanted to put this question to you. What games would you like to see on Christmas this year? Ooh, Okay. 
I wouldn't mind seeing maybe some of the young teams. So I think like Phoenix and New Orleans, for example, could be a, a nice, exciting game. Okay. I'd love to see a rematch of Utah-Denver ah, from the, good one. the bubble playoffs. I think that could be really good. That's a good one. Uh, what, what, why not have a LA-Miami? But they'd probably go for the LA Derby, yeah, I would imagine. Yeah, I think so. They're, they're the ones that come to mind immediately. Okay. And I guess, uh, you know, Brooklyn, hopefully all their stars are healthy, so they could look like quite a different team next season. So, mm. I don't know, maybe... Uh, do, do we want to say Knicks? Maybe if the Knicks get some good free agents. But I don't know, maybe a Brooklyn <laughs> Brooklyn Celtics, for example, could be a nice little one. Ah, yeah, the return of Kyrie. Yeah, yeah that yep. could be quite good. Yeah, I had a few. I mean, the Clippers-Lakers was definitely one that I looked at. I actually had the Grizzlies and the Pelicans. Oh, yeah, yeah. And that's a, a decent alternative. Yeah, and they to... had some good bubble fights too, yeah. Yep, yep. Uh, Miami-Milwaukee, I'd like to see. Yep. I'd like to see both rosters at, at full strength. Blazers-Rockets, that could be an interesting one, but I, I kind of like your idea of the Denver and uh, Utah. Looks, that sounds really, really good. And I had Celtics and Sixers, but I must admit Celtics and Nets probably sounds even juicier. So yeah, with the Kyrie return, yeah. Yeah, you come yep. with some crackers there. 72 games, I like the idea. It's not much of a reduction at all, so it kind of minimizes the legacy side of things, but it still allows them to kind of get things back on track before next season. So hopefully it's only the season just gone and this one that'll be... It's a bit ambitious for mine. I think they should probably shoot for 65, to be honest. Yep. But the thing that that I'm kind of a bit unsure about, if you're not going to have an all-star break, why would you have the two weeks off? That makes Uh, sense. I guess the teams that played really late into the playoffs would be quite fatigued if they only start around Christmas. Even a week. But for the, you know, on the other side of the coin, there are a lot of teams that haven't played since March. So they'll be rusty. Or, you know, maybe about a quarter of the the league Mm. or a fifth of the league haven't played since March. So, yeah, it's tricky. There's no easy way, though, is there? No, there's not. And and I, I definitely am okay with the whole no fans things. I mean... You want to get the thing started as soon as you can. There's no point in waiting for them. It's a necessary evil. I like the idea of no bubbles, guys being at home with their families. Uh, yeah, I think if they can have fans by playoffs, that's a big win. Yep. So we'll kind of see how that goes. Absolutely. They've also announced a deadline for the new CBA and any modifications to it by the, the 30th of October. So anything to do with the salary caps and that sort of thing as well. So... I'm very keen to see what they come out with. They're, they're going to have to rush this they thing. They don't have a lot of time. Why, why is the draft so late? If, if they were shooting for a February start, for argument's sake, the draft on 18th, 18th of November, November yeah. makes sense. Yeah. But that's still nearly a whole month away. Mm. It seems far too long if they're shooting for a Christmas restart. And restart. that's the weird part, isn't it? You're basically telling a lot of these guys you need to get from one side of America to the other in a week to report to training camps. Yeah, and to, you know, and you've got about a month with your new team. To relocate. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's nuts. It's absolutely crazy, so... Yeah, definitely a big watch this space. Yes, indeed. Speaking of the draft, Shuri. Yeah, Victor Wembanyama. He's this this French phenom that a lot of people are talking about. So this video. He's an albatross. He really is. <laughs> so videos emerged of this sixteen-year-old kid from France named Victor Wembanyama. In the video, he's facing up to Rudy Gobert. He's splashing jumpers in his face. Gobert's not really trying on defense that much, but. It's so easy to overreact to these things and, and see this guy who's 16 years old and nearly 7 foot 2. Here's what we know. He is 2 centimeters taller than Gobert. The only guys currently in the NBA who are taller than him are Taco Fall, Kristaps Porzingis, and Boban Marjanovic. Mm. And he's 16. And he's more mobile than Boban, for example. Definitely. And Taco yeah. Fall as well. And, yeah. We can also see he's got a pretty decent touch on his jump shot. He's comfortable making it over all-world defenders, so 
pretty decent there. We also know that he makes rookie Kevin Durant look like John Goodman. He is a twig. <laughs> John Goodman. Absolute twig. Oh, dear. So he's going to need to put on about King 30 Ralph. or 40 pounds. <laughs> so he's going to need to put on about 30 or 40 pounds before he's going to be any kind of factor. But I will say this. I did see some footage from his debut with Nantes 92 in the French's Pro A this is the team that brought through Rudy Gobert, Tony Parker, Boris Diaw, Evan Fournier, some really good NBA players. Ronnie Turiath? Probably not. Oh, it's just the next Frenchman I could think oh, of. There you go. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. Michael Petrius? Yeah. Going back to the old school yeah, Celtics yeah, and yeah. The Magic. But Beatrice, no, look, yeah. he went for 22, 10, and 7 blocks in his first game. So he looks pretty athletic, goes after his rebounds really hard on the offensive end. He's got good timing on his blocks, he makes up ground. He may still this have is the new inches. big, the yeah. big of the next generation. Yep. Yeah. I look. The overreaction comparison is Mark II of Kristaps Porzingis. Yeah. Well, you know, there's been a few guys like Darko Milicic over the years, this so we won't true. we won't get too excited too quickly. This but is true. Uh, it, it's it, it it is exciting. It is. Stan Van Gundy, the new coach of the Pelicans. What do we make of that one? I like the hire. I really do. He's got a really good winning percentage. Over, Orlando, Miami, played. he coached some yep, good teams. Yep. yep. So over 900 games there. He's been to the playoffs with the Heat. He's been to the finals with the Magic. He's a great coach. I think the Pels' young guys are going to like the way he, he drives them to succeed. He can be a little bit uh, a bit over the top sometimes because he's passionate, but I think the guys are going to want to see that. I actually heard Max Kellerman call him an ally to the righteous. Oh, which I think is a, is is really, really interesting. He also spoke about how he'd done something similar with Dwight Howard in Orlando. He took a number one pick to the finals by surrounding him with the right guys. Mm. So, ESPN counterpoint, Tony Kornheiser reckons that coaching gig is a poison chalice because the expectations with Zion are so high. So that's an interesting one too. Yeah, but- and I, I worry about Zion's weight and the injury problems on his knees and ankles. Mm, true. Yeah, he definitely does need to get him into some shape. And he's that, got to lose. I hope in the offseason he's lost a bit of weight because he certainly didn't heading into the bubble. No, and that's where Dwight Howard obviously had the advantage being chiseled out of stone. Yeah, yeah, but, Dwight was very lean. But yeah. um, no, I think the other thing that Kellerman sort of said in, in that interview was you tend to find with these situations you get about six years from the time they're drafted until the time that they kind They'll of fail. they kind of jump ship. So yep. especially in these, <laughs> to the LA's and the yeah, Miami's and Boston's of exactly. the world. Exactly. And yep. especially in the small markets like in New Orleans. So I, I think he's got enough time. It just depends how well he does. I think he's a great voice to have in there. He's he's obviously got the experience, he's got the winning mentality. It's about how well he can coach guys like Lonzo Ball and Brandon, Brandon Ingram. Ingram. Yeah, no, there's some the good young players there, and they'll get another decent draft pick. So, Bring could be up. a good little, good little gig. Now, look, we've got to admit we don't know a hell of a lot about this guy, but the Indiana Pacers have a new head coach in Nate Bjorkgren. Yeah, he's an assistant, or he was an assistant with the Toronto Raptors, so he's actually had a, a really good few years behind Nick Nurse. So. He's another one that, yeah, look, admittedly, we don't know a heap about him, but from all accounts, he is a guy who really, really understands systems well. He'll probably bring a very similar sort of coaching style to Indiana, so hopefully yeah, he'll be able to work with some of those role players and, and really start bringing them to the forefront the way that they were able to do in Toronto with, with so many of their role players. So, look, we will see. Uh, it's, that's one I'm... I don't think there's a huge amount of expectations on Indiana this, this season. They're probably not expecting to challenge for a championship. No, it's definitely not for a championship, but it's interesting because I think they were really harsh to fire McMillan. So there'll be some expectation that 
our old coach was good enough. You better be better. Do you know what I mean? So, but he's also inheriting a really good side. Oh yeah, yeah, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. So, and this could also be subject to what they pick up in the off season as if well. If they keep Oladipo, yeah. we'll see. And in the Jack Jump uh, in the NBL, Shuey. <laughs> yeah, Thomas Abercrombie has re-signed for his 76th season with the New Zealand Breakers, or yeah, so it seems. Crazy, yeah. He's been around for a long time. Uh, it amazes me that he's still, still contend. He had an uncalled goal tend in one of their championships against Perth. But anyway, that was about 40 years ago. Yeah, as well. well, you know. And Ricky Grace has actually been named to the selection panel who will help appoint the new Aussie Boomers coach. So the Brian Gorgian welcoming party? Well, essentially, yeah, you would bloody well hope so. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't hear that, though. That's interesting. Yeah. That was oh, good got, on him. Just good got announced him. a few days ago. So some, uh, some good news there for And he, of course, did suit up for the Boomers at one point. Well, Stuart, another big week. Our footy codes are done. We're kind of getting towards normalcy with not such a packed calendar. What are you apt for? It's actually starting to get a little bit like it was in the first episode where we had nothing Nothing, yeah, work. yeah. So yeah, there's no basketball, there's no footy, there's no NRL. So I, I guess I'm apt to finally be able to start shifting the focus to the IPL now that it's getting towards the, the pointy end of the season. So that's probably what I'm apt for. How about yourself? I'll stick with the cricket theme. I'm really interested to see what how the shield unfolds over the next few weeks to see who might be knocking on the door of that Aussie team. Nice. Until next time, I'm Nathan. And I'm Stu. We are the Sport Blokes. Hammy Taylor. Thank <laughs> you.